means. It means uh, without substance, and it also means life is going by quickly. The whole book's about life under the sun, physical life on earth. This is not about eternity in the sense of afterlife. We do live in eternity now. It's not about heaven or things like that. Um, after that, there's three relationships in the book, man and life, God and life, God and man. Life limits man. We talked a lot about that. We only live so long. I'm only so smart. I only have so many gifts. I'm only going to meet so many people. I'm only going to see so much of this world. And so life is very limiting. At the same time, Solomon says that has nothing to do with enjoying your life. So I could have limitless possibilities in this life, but the reality is that I would not enjoy my life anymore. Uh, after that, we will go on. All right. God in life. God designed life. So you don't live it any way you want for it to work out. Uh, use the analogy of a tricycle, you give it to a three-year-old, they can ride the tricycle poorly. It doesn't mean they won't do something with the tricycle. They could drag it around the house. They could try to play catch with it. They could do a lot of things. And I think all of us know people who look like they're dragging a tricycle around by the way they live their life. Poor choice after poor choice after poor choice, they never figured out. Our life does glorify God. God reveals himself to man. And then man is to fear God. And that will be the conclusion of the book, not the theme. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. This is when Solomon's getting into the practicality of the book. So if you're going to enjoy your life, this is the way to live your life. Okay? And uh, I, I use this illustration a lot. My dad said if there was no heaven, Christianity is still the better way to live his life. What does he mean by that? It means... This life on this planet, God has designed a certain way. And if you live it that way, you'll get the most enjoyment out of it. Now, where does the deception come in? God thinks long-term for your whole life. Are there things that are fun for a season that will not yield a better life? Yes or no? Absolutely. Okay. Um, I know it's a stupid illustration. I love Big Boy in Raytown. I love that restaurant. I love a Big Boy sandwich. I love a chocolate shake. I've taken my granddaughter there enough times that one day she said, one day I want to work here and I can serve you. I'm like, that's awesome. When I ask her where she wants to go to eat, she wants to go to eat there. I enjoy it every time I eat it. I love that. It's good. What if I eat it every day? I might have some struggles. Okay? There's an immediate gratification, but long-term to enjoy my life, there might be some things I want to do in my 70s if I last that long that I might want to take care of myself. Meaning, the principle of Ecclesiastes is not this is the best, most enjoyable thing right now. It's this is the most enjoyable thing to live your whole life. So we'll get into some very practical things. And these are things that you can apply to your life directly if you want to enjoy your life. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. What is this sacrifice of fools? For they consider not that they do evil. Now, we're going to think of some heinous sin here or something horrible like murder. That's not what he's talking about. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. 
Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel it was an error. Wherefore, should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also divers vanities, but fear thou God. How do you live your life well? The first thing is, take care of what you say. So, how often do we struggle with what we say? The book of James, we cannot even control our tongue. So here's the point. It's page 24. Solomon dresses our attitude and vocabulary when we approach God. The phrase, keep thy foot, would be expressed today as watch your step. So the temple referred to here is the temple of Solomon. That gives weight to he wrote the book. I won't get into that, but here's the point. One should approach God ready to hear. This readiness to listen is contrasted with the sacrifice of fools. The Hebrew word listen is translated as obey or obedient numerous times in the authorized version. So the first test is this. You came to church this morning. Hopefully, Chad did an excellent job. Do you come ready to hear and be entertained, or do you come ready to obey what God leads you to do? There's a difference. This is as much a readiness to obey as a readiness to listen. So what's the sacrifice of fools in this context? It's a sin of speaking contrasted with listening. One should measure their words carefully when talking to God. This must refer to praying. The motive for this admonition is the fact God is heaven, man's on earth. Here Solomon recognizes that God lives outside of under the sun. That's very important. We live under the sun. God does not. God's location is the motivation for measured words. How does this coincide with the psalmist who pours out his heart to God in prayer? The immediate context is about vows. Promises to God made hastily do not recognize his preeminence. A little bit further down, the sacrifice of fools is a multitude of pious words in which the speaker speaks hastily to God. Solomon describes the fool in Proverbs. The admonition is repeated in the New Testament as well. So what's the allusion to a dream coming through the multitude of business? That's a difficult interpretation. Con Solomon contrasts dreams with fearing God. So what's possible interpretations? It could refer to a tormenting dream. Job has that in Job 7.14. Nightmares and troubled dreams are common in the Bible. Troubling dreams accompany much work. It could be an analogy stating that those who approach God hastily with a multitude of words thinking this is an effect on God are living in a fantasy world. Now, where does this come? I'll give you an illustration. I spoke in church last week. I hate to use these, but it's amazing to me. One of these days, I'll teach a lesson on the other side of the corn and the hard saying. So here's something that typically happens. Every once in a while, a bunch of people want to get together and have a class at church about prodigal children. Okay? It's very real. That's the easy part. Oftentimes in our world, what we want to do is have a class on prodigal parents. A prodigal child class sometimes could be called a my will be done class. So you speak about parents not trying to control their adult children. And the way they try to control adult children is usually with their what? Words. And they do it through manipulation. They do it by not asking permission to give counsel to adult children. And they'll literally come in, so their words just come out, hasty, 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 talking, talking, talking. And literally they'll sit down and say, okay, 
what you're doing here is you're trying to manipulate or control your child rather and before the words are even out of our mouth as counselors often the same parent is already interrupting us and explaining to us that they're not trying to control their child they're just really worried about their child and you say i get that you're worried about your child but the tactic of trying to control an adult child with their words and you get about three words out and then they cut you off again it's called the sacrifice of fools hasty words about listening. Uh, we'll deal with a lot of moms with uh, teenage boys and the boys get addicted to things. Uh, not always, we always talk about pornography, we'll pick something else. Uh, gaming, and they'll be addicted. And you'll try to sit down and say, okay, the reason a teenage mind is gaming is to check out, amusement, muse, not think, right? So here's the best tactic you can use, the best tactic you, tactic you can use is say something that will require your son, usually it's a son who's addicted to this, to think later. A question maybe you would pose to him. And then later in their mind, it'll be lodged, you'll believe the Holy Spirit's at work and they'll start thinking about it. Are you tracking with me so far? What do you think usually happens in these situations with that mom who wants their teenage son to stop gaming? How much or how many words do you think that mom will use to try to accomplish that with the child often? Just guess. Less than a million, but a lot. And no matter how many times you say less words are better, lodge it in there, let them have time to think, let it grow, all of those things, they can't stop doing it. So here's the reality, I want to live my life well. For almost all of us, and I'm preaching to myself when I talk about this, for almost all of us, it would be to speak less and listen what? More. Will that really lead to a better life? It will. And I promise you this. When you look at the people in your life that you respect the most, that you consider the wisest, you will find that they don't give a lot of advice. Why? Because they don't know the decision you should make. They use few measured words, and what do they do instead of giving advice? They do what? They ask you questions. Because they're wanting to get you to what? Think. Okay? So you go through the whole thing here, and you say, well, what's the point? It has to do with vows, but it says this. Speak more than listen. Speaks before they think is a sacrifice of fools makes hasty decisions, quick, 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 I'll do this, 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 no, slow down, and make vows they cannot keep, meaning it's trying to teach you to count the cost before you do it, okay? So that is the sacrifice of fools. You say, what does this mean? It means God's designed our life in such a way that we're supposed to listen more than we what? Speak. Now, is that easy or hard? Oh, some of you, you're quiet. You know, I'm an introvert. Got that. <laughs> it's like all they can do to pour words out of you. Some of us, it is, it is tough. I've had to learn it. I love to argue. I love to debate. I do. I mean, and I don't even really have a lot of values. I pick either side. <laughs> I don't care. I just like it. I enjoy it. So I'll get into that. I can take off in about two seconds to argue something. It is a learned skill to do that. Tell me another time when we use a ton of words. We all have them. 
We have opinions about everything. Just look at, if you're on it, and I know if you're young, you're not on it anymore, but it used to be a big deal, Facebook. We are a very opinionated group of people. And we like to share our opinions in a multitude of what? Words. It's tough not to. We love to do it. This is telling us to pull back from that. Um, the next one is this, don't be naive. Verse 8, if they see the oppression of the poor and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province, marvel not at the matter. The deed is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. Moreover, the profit of the earth is all, and the king himself is served by the field. You say, this is simple. Naivety. I left out the word C. Don't be surprised when you see oppression and the violent perverting judgment. Now, this is a very powerful, and I'll use this again. If you really want to enjoy this life, Solomon is really saying, don't be naive. Okay. And this will separate people at church. I'm going to use an illustration that's kind of a, a tough one, but this will happen from time to time. How many of you, well, don't raise your hand, it'd be bad. How many of you ever been at a church where it's typical where someone in leadership either stole some money or had an affair? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> if you hang around church long enough. Yeah, happens from time to time. A lot of church splits. Okay. Or you see something that's grossly unfair in the world, like, um, I think this crime should have been judged this way. I, can I won't even mention them, they're so controversial because then I'll go back in time saying that was unfair that was unfair that was unfair or they were oppressed or they were oppressed or they were oppressed what Solomon's arguing Ecclesiastes is this not be okay with that just don't be what surprised why not Joel very good. Your quality of life will be greatly determined by the expectations you have for this world. If you have unreasonable expectations, you will continually be what? Disappointed. We do premarital classes um, through our counseling center. I think I've shared this before, but had two young couples. I was sharing this with uh, Chad and Josiah the other day. It was a part of the assessment. I shared this before, but if you weren't here, just bear members. It says, do you expect to have any troubles or problems or struggles in your marriage? And I had two couples recently that are great, scored very high on the test, and they said no. And we all laughed. And the test comes back, and it says they have an unrealistic view of marriage. They don't consider that a positive thing. It just all has to do with your expectations. So if you ask yourself, if I'm constantly being disappointed by this world, okay, well, get practical with it. So we're going to have election, national election in a couple of years. What can we expect from this election? Oh, very good. A lot of commercials. And they're going to be honest, full of integrity about the issues, correct? Oh, well, yeah. Are we going to be nice because we really learned to get along as a people? Oh, so, so do we have an expectation that Christians will be above the fray, yes or no? Will they be? No. Is there any chance that'll happen? No. Do you know how many people are going to vote? 
25%. It'll be more than that. But, you know, the big election, it won't be 50. Um, you say, well, why do you go through all that? Do you give up hope we're going to be cynical? No, it just means this. You cannot live your life with expectations that will never be what? Met. It doesn't mean you don't try. It doesn't mean you give up. You know, I'll never vote again. This thing. No, you vote anyway and just realize, you know, half the people in your family aren't going to vote. That should be happening. Yep, and sometimes, you know what, it's funny, but Nebuchadnezzar in charge, and the guy was crazy. And we think, I can't believe God would allow that to happen. The whole book of Daniel is about this. God will put ever in charge whoever he wants. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes out one day, and he has pride, and people think that's why he's out there. No, Nebuchadnezzar goes out there, and he gets a disease where he's eating grass like a cow. Why would God do that? And here's why God's doing in the book of Daniel. Here's what he's saying. I'll put whoever in charge I want. Want to. And that's the point of the book. But then when we see people, hypothetically, that are in charge that we ever think, I can't believe somebody's like, that is in charge. Should we be surprised by that, yes or no? No. And sometimes I feel like Christians can be the most gullible people in the world. With completely unreasonable expectations about life under the what? The sun. So when all these things happen again, don't buy miracle. I can't believe these people are oppressed. I can't believe that happens. That isn't a reason for us to get flustered by it. Are you following me? That is where we don't enjoy this life. And we go burdened by this, upset by this, upset by this. It won't work. All right, 10 through 17. This is about money, a very popular theme. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor that he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what is good is there to owners thereof, saving beholding of them with their eyes. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There's a sore evil which I've seen under the sun, namely riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail, and he begetteth the son, and there's nothing in his hand. Now I'll explain what this means in a second. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came. He shall take nothing for his labor, which he may carry away from his hand. This also is a sore evil that all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he which labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. Now this is the dichotomy in the book of Ecclesiastes. So I'll give you in a nutshell, and then I'll read through this real quick. Solomon wants us to be fulfilled with working hard. He does. He wants us to enjoy our work. It's one of the greatest things we can do. But he says this. Don't seek to be satisfied by the abundance you gain through your work. That will not satisfy you. So you go through here. It's on page 25. Solomon gives numerous reasons why wealth will never satisfy. So here we go. One's desire will increase as their wealth increases. Satisfaction is unattainable. Solomon teaches that those who love wealth and abundance will never be satisfied with increase. Ecclesiastes emphasizes this. Now, does money make you happy, yes or no? It's a trick question. <laughs> you can rent it. Here's what the research actually shows. Henry Cloud did this in The Law of Happiness where I get the quote. I was talking to someone the other day that says it's increased. There's actually some data that says that as your income increases, 
this is in the United States, it only works for the United States, it's reporting time, that your happiness can actually increase to some extent until you get to a certain dollar amount. Okay. This was a few years back, so it could have changed. But this is for household income. Okay. And does anyone want to guess about what the dollar amount is? A year. A household needs to make this much. As long as they're increasing, there's some semblance of happiness in our current economy and the way we're set up. And then after this, there's no more happiness gained by more money. I know it's a total guess, but is there any? It's less. Less. It's about 60. Now, it could be up a little bit. Why is that? But why that amount in our country? What? Okay. So basically, let's say you have a family of five. Okay. In our country, 15 bucks an hour, 30,000 a year for a person, that's still considered poverty. So let's say you have a family of five. And you're making 50 to 60 a year. In our current world, and you give some of that away and you pay taxes, I won't my undergraduate was finance, I won't get into that because it bores me, <laughs> but, I will, but I'll say this, pretty much you're right. You could find a place to live, you could eat, you could all be clothed, and some semblance of recreation for this world. Are you all following me? You could have that. <clears throat> so it says until you get to that point, you could be very frustrated, meaning if you don't make enough money in our current system to like feed your family and you need help, that could make you sad. That is true. But once you get to that dollar amount, no matter how much you make above that, you won't increase your happiness any. You can do a lot of other stuff, but it doesn't necessarily do that. That's what Solomon's saying. The point of it is, if you think this is the thing that will make you happier, it will not. And I can, I can assure you that is the case with people. Uh, in fact, I don't, you say, well, you know, if, if wealthy, attractive, however the world defines that, if wealthy, attractive people were the happiest people on earth, then Hollywood should be the home of the happiest people on earth. This is realism. It just doesn't work that way. So when you go through it, wealth will never satisfy. So he says this. He's going to make this case for you to enjoy your life because of it. So we'll look at verse 18 through 20. Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy all his labor, which he taketh all under the sun, all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom he hath given riches and wealth, hath given him power to eat thereof and to make his portion, to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he shall not much remember the days of his life, because God answered him in the joy of his heart. So the carpe diem at the top of page 26, once again, work hard. Enjoy food and drink, and that means it's a happiness that's intentional community with people, okay? So, what should you do with the money you make? This is interesting. There's five things to do in the Bible. I'll give you this quickly. It's not in the notes. If you do these five things, you'll be a happy person with your money. Okay, we'll say this. Give some away. Be generous. We got that one. Okay, good. Save some for the future. Go to the Ant House Slugger and think of the future. Okay, well, we'll get into that and what not to do with it. What should you do with it? What? 
Pay your bills. That's very good. Paul writes Timothy. He says, uh, if you don't care for your old household, you're worse than an infidel, so you got to pay your bills. And there's two other things. One thing you have to do. Yeah, you got to pay your taxes. And pretty much Jesus said, just don't whine about it. Render under what? Things that are Caesar's. His name's on the coin. Give him the money. So you got your taxes. And you left out one. It's the whole theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah, you ought to enjoy it. At least once in your life, take the kids to Disney World. What's well, overpriced? Sure it is. What's well, just commercialized? Sure it is. Well, it's just, you know, going to suck my money every time I turn around. Sure it is. What should you do? Go at least once. It's worth seeing. You know what he says? You do those five things with your money, you'll earn what? Things with your life. You get two extremes. One person saves all their money till they die. They're going to leave it to somebody else. Someone spends all their money and they're in debt, and they don't have anything, and then neither can give it away. So, you know, I look at somebody and say, well, I'm giving all my money to church. Nah, that's not what the Bible says. Well, I don't give anyone money to church. Nah, that ain't what the Bible says either. Do all what? Five. There's one, if you don't do it, you'll go to jail. Which one's that? Taxes. Okay, so you might want to stay out of jail with that. So then you say, well, I'm pretty successful. I'm pretty good at things. I kind of got my life put together. I've worked real hard. So here's what he says in Ecclesiastes 6, 1 and 2. There's an evil which I've seen under the sun, and it is common among men. Common. A man to whom God hath given riches, wealth, and honor, so that he wanteth nothing for his soul of all that he desireth, yet God giveth him not power to eat thereof. But a stranger eateth this is vanity, and it is an evil disease. Be thankful for God's gift of ability. This is a big one. Within the context of wealth, Solomon deserves an evil under sun. It's a common injustice. Man has been given three gifts, riches, wealth, and honor. However, he doesn't have the power to enjoy the gifts. The word power means to have mastery over something. The rich person has everything, but he does not possess the power to enjoy any of it. This could be health concerns, emotional immaturity, weak constitution, etc. I know we're not Baptists anymore, but I found this interesting. A pretty study by Ken Farrow, professor of sociology, revealed Baptists are the most obese of any denomination. This could be due to their eating patterns found in the South or their reliance on overeating since they avoid other religious taboos such as alcohol and tobacco. Basically, the reason we eat a lot is we don't smoke pot. Well, we got to do something to overcome it and escape from ours, so that's what we do. He's going through all of the things here. Do you have mastery and discipline in your life? It must be observed because does not give him the ability to eat thereof. It's a tragedy is multiplied and that a stranger enjoys the riches of a man's blessings. One of the sad things you get to do as a pastor is you get to do a lot of funerals. I feel bad saying that. Pat does a ton. So I have somebody who works for me. Her aunt passed away this weekend. I zipped over to hospice, got there, died within hours, and I'll do the funeral Tuesday. Never been to hospice. My sister oversees one. Hospice is people who no longer have the ability or the power to enjoy their what? Life. So I'm teaching Ecclesiastes as another reminder of all the things. You're there comforting, you're there with the family, things like this. Do you still have the ability to enjoy your wealth? Whatever it is. I don't have wealth. <laughs> well, you have something. Do you have the ability to enjoy it? 
If you left here tonight, could you go out to dinner somewhere and enjoy the food and eat it and enjoy the taste and still be able to digest it and go home? If you can, then you have a great gift from who? From God. He's saying enjoy that. But the injustice he sees is you see somebody who could have an abundance of things, but they no longer possess an ability to what? Enjoy their life. If you have the ability, it's simple. Just say a little prayer to yourself right now. It's not a big one. Thanks, God. Because there'll come a day when that's all you're going to want in the world is that. Ecclesiastes says you still have it. Enjoy it. Two through six, this is sad. If a man beget a hundred children and live many years so that the days of his years be many and his soul be not filled with good and also that he hath no burial, I'll explain that, I say, an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity and departeth in darkness and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, if he hath not seen the sun nor know anything, this has more rest than the other. You say, what's he saying there? Yea, though he lived a thousand years twice told, yet if he seen no good, do not all go to one place. This is one of the saddest ones, I think. It's simply this, a wasted life. This is the use of hyperbole. It's the bottom of page 26. If a man has a hundred children and lives many years, hyperbole, okay, there's a scenario where it would have been better if he had never been born. Now, who did pray in the Bible he would see never even more? Joseph. The wording wording refers to an abortion or a stillbirth. This is a striking contrast as Solomon argues the life of the stillborn is more desirable than the life of the wealthy that cannot do what? Enjoy life. The stillborn never sees the light of day and is at rest, while those who live and cannot enjoy life are in a continual state of conscious suffering. He's not satisfied with good things. His lack of a proper burial reflects a life where he earned no honor because he invested in no one. It's one of the saddest commentaries in all of Ecclesiastes where Solomon's saying it is possible to waste your life. I like the illustration Chad used this morning. He had all the, it kind of hits hard pretty quick. He had all the sheets of paper measuring your life with your kids. And I don't remember, it's like 3,600 days or something like that. He was talking about his oldest girl, who's seven. He just took out a block of pages and said, that's already gone. What did you do with it? Did you waste it? And those hit home to me. I mean, I share them here. I remember uh, my granddaughter was running around in diapers, and I blinked, and she's going to finish kindergarten. Now, this is what really will put it in perspective for her parents saying that you have until 18, and hopefully they progress and become autonomous and do something with their life. A third of it's already gone. Wow. That was quick. Third. One statistic I didn't know that he shared this morning was a parent wanting to spend time with their child. 95% of that time will be spent before they're 18. Now, when I think through that, it makes perfect sense because they're living at home. With millennials now, I guess it could go longer. That was a cheap shot. I apologize for that. But, but you know what? Um, that went quick. Are you wasting it? Are you wasting it? Another sheet of paper, another sheet of paper. I like how he ended it this morning. I'm not just giving props to him. I really thought it was a really good message. Are you going to make a change and enjoy the rest of your life? 
and not wasted. That's what he's getting at. So it's one of the saddest things in the world where he goes. Uh, 7 through 10, all the labor of a man is for his mouth, and yet his appetite is not filled. For what hath the wise more than the fool? What hath the poor that knoweth to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire, which is also vanity and vexation of spirit. And then he says this, that which is named already, and it has known that it is man, neither can it be contend with him that is mightier than he. I know I'm going quicker, but I want to get through all this. Verse 27, <coughs> simply this. Gain an advantage in life, and this is a hard one, be content. Solomon concludes his argument against finding fulfillment in wealth. Human beings seek wealth to satisfy sensual desires, but sensual desires are never what? Satisfied. We will be hungry again. What's he mean by there's no difference between the wise and the fool? It's difficult. There's no difference between the wise and the fool or the poor if they don't learn contentment. Page 27. Nothing satisfies. There is, there is no advantage in being wise. This verse is asking legitimate questions answered in verse 9. So, let contentment rule one's life. Since this life is limited and limits us, we should learn contentment. In the end, God's in control. The specific context refers to the fact that God has designed this life. Seeking to find a path in life under the sun that fulfills is impossible since God has designed no such path. True enjoyment is found in contentment with one's portion in this life. Now, this is tough. So should I not have goals? Should I not try? I'm just going to stay home and order in Domino's, eat, drink, and be merry. That's not what he's saying. But where do you think we should learn to be content? Let's start in our relationships, just to be honest. You know, a lot of time people will come in for marriage counseling. You say, well, so here's the bad news, okay? And I'm not talking about the most egregious, horrible situations, but I'm just going to be, this is what the research shows. How much do you think we're really going to change as we get older? <laughs> not a lot. That's bad news. No, it's not. Here's what it shows. Little changes can make a big difference. That's what marriage counseling needs these days. A little change can make a big difference. Okay? But it's highly unlikely we're going to have huge changes. So here's what happens a lot of time in marriage counseling you're really trying to lead the person to, in many ways, not always, many ways, accept their spouse for what? Who they are. Does that happen a lot? Oh, yeah. I'll give you some real ones. I'm just going for it. I'm going to be controversial tonight, all the things that you'll never hear spoken out loud. Here's what we'll deal with a lot of times. Um, wives have an expectation their pastor will, I mean their husband will be, and I hate using this word, spiritual, however you define that, will be spiritual like their pastor. They're immediately comparing their husband to their what? Pastor. And they actually use real names, which never goes over well in counseling. <laughs> Why can't you be more like... So here's the reality. This is real life. My mom and dad, oh man, 
over 60 years married, happy for me. Okay. They started dating in junior high. All right. They love each other. And my dad is godly. On a scale of 1 to 10, guess how much my dad studied for himself the Bible in his life? I don't know, two or three. Why not? He wasn't much of a reader. You saying he didn't read at all? No, he read some. He's just not a huge reader. He's a prayer. Fair enough. Served God his whole life. Raised two awesome girls and a guy that's barely getting by, but hey, it's a slut. What if my mom her whole life would have wanted my dad to read and study and teach the Bible like all the pastors he's been under? Frustration. Disappointment. That wasn't who God gifted my dad to be. He wasn't that. Just wasn't. But she was happy with the one she was. She had. She was just with wives all the time. Husband, why can't you be like, and they'll refer to a pastor's wife over here who can teach, can do all these things. But that guy's married to a wife who's an introvert. She's never going to be in front of people. She's never going to do that. That husband should learn to be satisfied with the what? The wife he has. I shared this before. I knew I grew up and I realized, and I share it all the time, I didn't need a perfect dad. Didn't want a perfect dad. Don't know what I'd done with a perfect dad because I was far from a what? Perfect son. I'm not talking about the most egregious things in the world. I'm just saying what he's arguing here is you need to learn in your life to be what? Content. I know this. I should work hard, and I'm not saying you shouldn't have ambition and try, but I know this. My life and my happiness will not be determined by my ability to accomplish all these goals and do all these things, especially if they're sensual, because as soon as I get there, I'm going to have another what? Another one. Be content with the work. That's what Solomon's arguing here. Okay? Um, Verse 11. Seeing there be many things that increase vanity, what is a man the better? For who knoweth what is good for a man in this life all the days of his vain life, which he spendeth as a shadow? That means it goes quickly. For who can tell a man what shall be after him under the sun? How life is limiting. So here's what's going to happen in this next portion. It transitions the book from observation to advice. And life limits us because it is short and we cannot know the future. So I'm not a country music fan, but if I was... I just played Garth Brooks' song, The Dance, here, and we would all cry a little tear, but here's the reality. We think we want to know the future, but do we? We don't. Do you want to know when you'll die? No. I sure don't want to know how I'll die. No. So life limiting is short, and I just can't know the what? The future. And so then he switches it here, and he says, okay, you can answer some questions to live a good life. So here we go. The Hebrew word for things, translated word, commandment, or chronicle over 850 times in the authorized version. The context of Ecclesiastes argues that although many things are written, 
And in the increase, the increased vanity, man is not necessarily better through revelation. So he asked two questions to transition the second half of the book. These are important. Who can know what is good for a man in this present life? This context is asked in the context of life's vanity. The argument for brevity and an unsubstantial nature is again seen in the metaphor of a shadow. Here in God, the argument is simple. The brevity of life makes it impossible to determine what is best at any given time. This is really, an, well, I'll get to this in a second. Who can tell the future under the sun? The phrase under the sun reinforces the fact Coalette or Solomon does not deal with the afterlife. Life limits us in two profound ways. It's short, and we're unable to know the future. So here is our obsession. And we see this all the time with people. We want to make the absolute best decision at any moment in time. Now, some are obvious. I should not rob a bank tonight. Fair enough. Do we have the ability, or is it even important, to always make the exact best decision every second of every day, yes or no? No. Why is it impossible to do that? We're not God. What else? We don't. Thank you. Should I take this job or this job? Here's why it's absolutely impossible to make that decision. This company might be on the verge of bankruptcy, and they're never going to tell you that in an interview, and that's that. You can't. Are you tracking with me? Many people live their life like God's trying to get them to pick curtain A out of curtain A, B, and C. But unless he comes to you in a dream and just says, pick A, you don't know. And we live our life that way. Solomon says that's not the best way to live your life. Solomon says the best way to live your life is to enjoy it. So I could work for company A, B, or C. And you're going to weigh everything. You're going to talk about the goals. And you're going to pray. And maybe God at times is going to reveal something specific. But more often than not, here will be the answer in your life from God. Should I work at company A, B, or C? I don't know. Which one do you want to work at? Which one do you want me to work at? I don't know. Which one do you want to work at? Well, i got to get the right one. What do you mean by the right one? Well, I want to do your perfect plan. Oh, my plan is going to be accomplished out of all three. What's your plan? Oh, I'm going to make you like Jesus. What well, if I pick the wrong one? Oh, no, I got that in all three. I'm good. Well, should I go to this church? Well, this is a church. I don't care. Should I go to this church, this, or this church? Which one do you want to go to? Well, I want the one that will really conform me to Christ. I'll use all three for that. Well, maybe not the really wacko one. Don't go there. But when we obsess about I have to make the exact right decision at every time, we're not going to enjoy our life. You'll also constantly live in the state of regret. I'm talking to a guy the other day. He made a financial decision with some pretty serious counseling. I won't get into it. And he feels like he's made the biggest failure of his life. Big time. It's serious. What do you tell him? You don't know the answer to that yet. Because you haven't seen the what. You haven't seen the rest. And it's like, it's curtain A, B, and C. And if I mess up, then my life is destroyed what? Forever. I hope I didn't meet who I was supposed to marry in fourth grade and hit her on the playground. It's over. I'm on the plan B for the rest of my life. 
have to find just the person, my soulmate. I know it's not as romantic as we like to think, and I believe God put me with my wife, and I think he could have put me with someone else. Sorry. I think I worked at the places I was supposed to work at in the churches, and I've really enjoyed my life. I think he led me to the ones I did. But I would hate to have the pressure on me that I always had to make the what? Perfect choice. Instead, instead of curtain A, B, and C, hey, there's curtain A through Z, and God's give you this wonderful life if you really want to serve him and you really want to do what's right and you really want to enjoy that life, and pick the curtain and go, and God's going to go what? And he's on the other side of the what? Curtain. Now, I'm not talking about really bad choices. You know, like, well, I'm going to start meth tomorrow because I want to see what it's like. I'm not talking about choices like that. I'm talking about living your life where you don't have to make the exact right choice every time. There's things I thought I wanted to do in life that, oh my, I look back. I'm in my 50s, I'm a lot lazier than I was. I'm glad I didn't do that. In ministry, I think I want to go do that. Oh, I'm glad I didn't just do that. Do you live your life with the freedom that God's given you many opportunities, and he's excited to see what you want to do. Think of yourself as a parent if you are. Do you want to be so rigid? I want, and if you've been this, I'm, I don't mean to step on toes. I don't, I want my child to do this, then go to this school and do this impression. And I know you wanted to pick who they would marry. I get that. And pick, the, you know what I'm saying? Or did you want to train your child to make good decisions and be wise and enjoy this life and take a step back and see where they were going to what? Go. A lot of freedom there. That what's God, that's what God's talking about. Talking to a guy today in his 60s. <laughs> oh, he wouldn't mind me saying. He thinks he's in love with someone in another state. He's been here his whole life. What do I do? I don't know. Are you in love? Why don't you go get married and live the rest of your life with somebody you love and see how that works out? Why wouldn't he fear? Scared? Would God want me to do that? They're believers. Are you in love with her? Yeah. She in love with you? Yeah. Why was it just the right? Be sitting here at 75 years old alone a lonely way to live your life meaning i don't have to just nail it every time you say what about the things god specifically wants me to do i promise you this he'll open doors so wide you can't miss them i could show you stories in my life where i didn't know what i wanted to do how did i end up in vocational ministry i worked at a place i moved up to kansas city i'm at the place the pastor called at the church that he wanted to meet with me on a friday I didn't really know if I ever wanted to be in church world vocationally for whatever reason. Probably sin in my life, to be honest. God, make it clear to me. The next day I went in. I worked for a company. The vice president had been flown up from Dallas. He walked in. There were 100 employees. They're closing our branch. I had the meeting on Friday. Now, I didn't have to take the job at the church, and I could have moved with the company. But that was a pretty big door to me. Totally surprised. That's how I ended up going to work at a church. There's been times in my life when it was crystal clear what I needed to do. Most of the time, it's left up to me to make the best choice I can and believe God's going what? With me. The other way to live your life will bring unbelievable anxiety to your life. 
always scared I'm going to make for what? The wrong choice, not how to enjoy your life. So, All right, chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of one's birth. These are better than Proverbs. They have to do with our reputation. So what's a better than proverb? This verse marks the beginning of a series of Proverbs. Many follow the better man um, pattern introduced previously. A series of Proverbs are seen in the context of questions posed previously. Although it is true that man cannot be bettered, (laughs) there are definitely some things under the sun that are better than others. To successfully enjoy this life requires one to choose the better things. It is then argued that this is the life that glorifies God. So here we go. Our reputation is more valuable than great riches, silver or gold or anything else. Next paragraph. The second half of the proverb is not traditional. The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. This is not a commentary on the afterlife. Many scholars see a negative view found in this statement. While this is not unfounded argument, seeing the context of this proverb and the parallelism of the poetry makes sense. The day of death takes place when a person's reputation has been developed, matured, and communicated. The day of one's birth reveals a person with no reputation. Here's the point. It takes a lifetime to develop something that is more valuable than what is acquired but cannot be kept during our life under the sun. It's not talking about going to heaven. It means this. If you lived a rich, full life and you have blessed people and you've given away, at the end of your life, you have a what? A reputation. And that's invaluable. The baby's cute, (laughs) but it hasn't what? It hasn't done any of those things yet. Um, Two through nine. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go into the house of feasting. For that is in the end all men and the living will lay to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance of the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth or joy. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For he is crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. It's one of my favorite parts of Ecclesiastes. It simply says this. Adversity is a great teacher. I don't want to rush through this. There are things I learned in my life only through pain. learn them from the pastor? No. You didn't learn them from reading your Bible? No. You didn't learn them from a good teacher? No. You didn't learn them from your parents? No. There's things that are dear to me that change me that I only learn through pain. That's what he's saying here. Cola states it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Pleasure is never presented to be the ultimate goal. Contemplation of death gives perspective on life, especially the brevity of life in Ecclesiastes. Mortality is true for all men and should be considered while we are living. Hebrew word translated as sorrow. (laughs) Some scholars see no justification for this translation and prefer the word anger. However, this word is translated sorrow or grief over eight times in the authorized version. Here it goes. Koaleth argues that our heart is made better through what? So I can tell you this from the counseling world. I don't stay in this world very long. Those who grieve best have the most joy in their life. Although laughter is associated with pleasure, sorrow is associated with growth and reality. 
We become a better person through sorrow when we have a correct worldview under the sun. He goes through the other thing about rebukes better and oppression is better. So I won't go into that for sake of time, but I'll just say this. Do you do sadness well? What do we do instead of doing sadness well? We compartmentalize it. We live in this Pollyanna world where we think everything's better when it's not, or we get addicted to things. What should we do? Feel it. Allow yourself to be sad. And then I'll have no joy. No, you can have joy at the same time. You can hold multiple emotions. And allow yourself to be sad. I'm spending time with the family today, preparing them for a funeral. What am I trying to get them to do? Be what? Sad. Be sad for a while. Lost their mom. Big deal. Be sad. Do you do sadness well? If you learn to do sadness well, you'll be strong in this life. A lot of people come to counseling to learn to grieve. And I'll just say this. We're not a society that grieves very much. Um, I don't know, most days for a media family, spouse, child, mom, dad, how many days off? Three. Some cultures could be three months. When you read those stories in the Bible, they would have a planned way, time when they would go wail in the mountains. And you're like, what's that about? And they were saying, you need to spend time what? We used to live in a society when we did it a little better. What would a widow wear for a long time? What color? She wore that black for a long time. Well, she'd just get on with her life. No, that was a time where kind of forced her to what? Grieve. It was also a reminder to everyone around her that she had had a great what? Loss. They say, man, how depressing. You need to skippy go. Come on. No. Will you grieve? Will you take time to do that? That's what he's arguing. Uh, verse 10. Now, this is one. We'll finish with this. This is as far as we'll get. I like this. Say not thou. These are things never to say. Okay? What is the cause that the former days were better than these, that thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this? Wisdom is good, which is an inheritance, and by it is there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense, but excellency of knowledge is what wisdom giveth to him that have it. Consider the work of God, for who can make straight that which is made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. God also has set the one over against the other to the end, that man should not find anything after him. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There's a just man that perisheth in his righteousness. There's a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. That's not fair. Be not righteous over and much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not over much wicked, neither be foolish. Why should I die before their time? I'll talk about that. It's good that thou shouldest take hold of this, yea, also withdraw it not from thy hand. For he that fears God... Um, shall come forth of them all. Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city, for there is not a just among the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. These are things never to say. We'll see how often we say them. Number one, don't say the good old days were better. That is just straight up. I want to enjoy my life. Don't ever say that. Ouch. Why not? He doesn't say. He just says don't do it. Why should we never sit around and say the good old days were better? I don't know the answer to that, by the way. He just says, don't do it. Joel? Okay. Oh, yeah. So it's a reality you can't get back to anyway, and if you believe it, 
Why else shouldn't you say it? Okay, that's a really good point. One reason never to say it is because they weren't. <laughs> With time, we can kind of turn it into a fairy tale when we think it was all wise. Great. Why else shouldn't you say it? What? Yeah, discontent in your presence. What if they were better? I don't know. He doesn't say they weren't. He just says, don't ever what? Say that. That's pretty strong. Church. I remember when, I don't know, I shared a few weeks back. I made up my mind in my 30s probably. I grew up during all the wars of church world. What were the wars I grew up in? Oh, my. Uh, the Calvinism War. The Counseling War. The Mommy Wars. That's when who's a more godly mom, public school, Christian school, homeschool. Those were good. Um, the worship wars. What were the worship wars? Yeah, it was about one thing. Drums or guitar, that switched, and hymns or Satan's music. One of the two. <laughs> Here's the reality of it. I remember hymns. I grew up in them. I know the lyrics. I'm Gen X. Okay. I think five years behind me, they won't. My sister's two, she remembers some. It's almost gone. I don't know how many churches thought, split, did everything. You know what? I just learned this. The style of music that they're singing is going to be the style of music I like. <laughs> Fine. But I praise God anyway. I listen in my car to what I want to listen to. Here's the point. Don't say that at church the good old days. Prosperity, he says, be joyful. Are things going good for you right now? Be happy. Got your health. People in your life are healthy. Be joyful. It says this, if you have adversity, what? Consider. Think about why you're having it. What's going on? What can God what? Teach you. It's really hard. That's the names of your life. This is one. Don't be too righteous. Wow. I told you I had a small group the other day and one of the ladies in our small group loves dancing. She does, I think it's line dancing or I don't know what it is. Some, some sort of dancing. I can't remember. She's like, I think I'm going to give up this and even serve more at church. And our group was, no, you shouldn't do that. Don't be so far out of bounds. And the last one is this um, for everyone. I got some employees that work under me at work. They report to me, two of them. They're friends. And we're all good friends. I think we have a great relationship. We are truly friends. Good friends. One of the funerals I'm performing for someone in our family. Known them for years. Good friends. You think they ever talk about me behind my back when they think I'm being stupid? <laughs> Count on it. Think they do that? Yeah. What should be my reaction to that? What's the word of God say? Don't be overly what? Sensitive when those under you speak what? If you do become thrown off course every time that happens, what will you get to experience a lot in your life? Instability, disappointment, paranoia. And I hope they don't do that. But Solomon's giving you some pretty sound advice. Well, I want to be a leader. 
Hmm. Do you think sometimes the people you lead might not be too happy with what you do? Yes or no? Can you be overly sensitive and be a leader and enjoy this life? Yes or no? No. For honest, I used to say this, especially of men. There's like four jobs all men in the world think they can do superbly better than anyone else. One is pastor the church they go to. Two is be the head coach of the team they love. Three is to be the owner-operator of the company for which they work. And the last one is whatever their interest is, they think they can do better. We just have a tendency to think we can do that. If you're going to lead, will people under you think they can do it better than you? Yes or no? Does that make them bad? No, because I do it what? Too. Okay. All right. Any questions on all of this? We'll have to stop there tonight or comments. I know it's a lot. Isn't it practical, though? I mean, some of the things you can say, well, how can I enjoy my life better? It's just, yeah, never say the good old days were better. Just write that down. Never do that. Listen more than you talk. Any questions, comments about what Solomon's trying to say? Yes. Hold on, we got a mic here. Oh, yeah. Said, listen more than you talk. Is that talking about James 1 and 19? Yeah, I have it actually in the notes where he talks about the um, swift to hear, slow to speak um, with that. There's a ton of, in fact, I can't tell you how many of the Proverbs are listed. 100%, how you listen, do you give your opinion, do you talk too much, do you share when you wouldn't, do you have an opinion on a matter before you've heard both what sides, I mean, there's just no end, it just, I mean, it, by the way, in the Proverbs, it says, if you'll just be quiet, people will think you're wise, so, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about, just do this, yeah, but wow, that person is wise, so, yes, yes, I need to back up for just a second on when I was reading Ecclesiastes last night and was going through and it kept saying, you know, Nathan, the very first night we had, we started on Ecclesiastes, he talked about vanity. Vanity again means unsubstantial. And brevity. Yeah. Unsubstantial, no substance to it. Okay. And then when it says in the wind. In the wind means like chasing it, like vexation. So let's say I want silver, that's a great question. If I want silver to satisfy me. And it's vexation of spirit, like chasing the wind. It would be like the wind's going through here, so I want to find some contentment from silver. It would be like I'm trying to catch it. And you can almost, it's a great image, it's a great metaphor. You're spending your whole life trying to, but there's nothing there. Um, it doesn't mean you can't enjoy your work, but uh, I always, the illustration my youth director used to use was cotton candy. Tastes good, you can enjoy it, but there's no real what there. Substance. I mean, it's just gone like that. So if you're looking for that to be fulfilling, to give you great accomplishment in your life, it won't. And that's chasing the wind is the analogy that he uses there. Vexation of spirit. So, good. Anyone else that he's trying to get across? All right. Um, I would say this. Do enjoy your life. Be thankful for the life you've been given. Are you enjoying it? And if you're not, figure out what's getting in the way and maybe do that. So, all right, see you next week. Final week.